And if you think about this like element at the intersection between marketing and sales as functions within organizations, it really speaks about lead scoring. Like the way this happened from a mechanical perspective is lead scoring. But lead scoring is a fairly unsatisfying concept. It's a simple idea, but poorly implemented. You pass, you get a lead, you score this lead, you assign a value to this lead based on a series of criteria. You know, how big is the company, how much revenue, how much funding, how many customers, geography, which industry. And then you pass it over to your CRM and you call it a day. But every operator worth its salt knows that following up on a promising lead tomorrow versus three weeks from now is fundamentally different. And so the time element there, there is a decay of that value. There is a shelf life that's not really accounted for in these systems. And so the way, like what we believe is that it should be. It should be a more sophisticated way of thinking and talking and measuring and acting on these leads more programmatically at scale, more dynamically, including this time element. Hi there, this is Vijay Damaji Prapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello, everyone. This is Vijay Damujiparapu with yet another episode of the B2B Go-to-Market Leaders podcast. And today I have with me Armando Biondi. Armando, welcome. Super excited. And I'll obviously run to the background of you and all the great startup journey that you had. So welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I looked at your bio and the reason I was so excited and was so looking forward to having you on the podcast is like a couple of reasons, right? One is obviously around the breadth and depth of experience, having done either the C-suite roles or the founder roles or even a board member role in six or even more startups, mm -hmm. right? So you clearly have the depth that is needed for the go-to-market and the breadth and the depth. So clearly that's one. And the second reason is that you have been and you continue to be an active member in the whole startup community and startup ecosystem. So you are, number one, an angel investor. So that's a big deal. You also are a mentor and you're a board member. So you're not only seeing the go-to-market challenges from the companies that you're working at, but you're seeing it from, I think, across the entire startup ecosystem, maybe tens or even hundreds of startups. So clearly excited about that. So let's start off with the most obvious and the signature question for the show, which is, what is your definition of go-to-market? Yeah, it's a very good question. The way I think about go-to-market, it's really like all-encompassing definition, meaning everything that has to deal with how you bring to market or a service or a combination of the two, right? And so... There is a marketing element around it. There is a price and packaging element around it. There is a service or like a support element around it to some degree as well, right? How you fulfill the promise of it and how you communicate that promise and the mechanics that are behind it. So there is an ops element to it as well. Those are maybe the, the main categories that come to mind when I think about go-to-market. Okay. And then just double-clicking or diving in. So from a go-to-market perspective, obviously, go-to-market for an early-stage company or a product will be different from go-to-market for a more mature product. 
And there's also another flavor of go-to-market for a product line versus go-to-market for a company. Yeah. It's entirely different. So just curious about your thoughts on those. Yeah, so this uh, is already like a potentially big topic, meaning that uh, if you want to summarize it like relatively quickly and you know, up to you how much time you want to spend. We have plenty of time. No worries on that. <laughs> it's interesting because if I think about like go-to-market from a startup perspective, early-stage company, the reality is that vast majority of people think about like over, tend to overthink things, meaning that if you think about like successful companies out there at an early stage, like you know successful exits up to maybe let's call it I don't know five to ten million dollars in ARR or revenue, if you are thinking about like a SaaS world or you know a different world, the reality is that most of those companies they need to nail one go-to-market strategy slash tactic. They don't need too many on top of that. And so uh, one of the things, like if you accept that thought, one of the things that you see over and over again is founders being constantly in like search mode. And so not realizing necessarily per se that they actually stumbled upon something that is working. And so continuing to look for other things and without doubling down on the stuff that's working right now and that can continue to work up to a certain point. And, you know, this can come in many flavors, can come through I don't know, inbound content or outbound or paid even for if it's a D2C company that we're talking about, the reality is that most of the budget, most of the funding that any D2C company will ever raise go through pay. And so, you know, you have to nail one go-to-market strategy to be successful or you don't need too many more. That will progressively change as the company matures and grows, uh, because at some point, you know, if there is one thing which is always true about go-to-market strategies, is that there is a ceiling. At some point, they start to work less effectively or not as well as they were before, and so you kind of exhaust that potential, and you need to look for additional sources of growth, and that is when you start expanding into multiple go-to-market strategies that you keep executing on in parallel and you have working in concert with each other to drive growth. Usually what happens as well is that companies tend to move from high-performing, highly measurable type of tactics slash strategies, kind of a DR, if we're talking about like advertising, kind of a DR, direct response type of motion and as they evolve and they start tapping out that channel, they start migrating toward less performing and less DR type of channels. And so more brand related, more, uh, more intangible. And they layer you know, all the different strategies on top of each other. And so that's also you know, very, very common when, you, when you're thinking about this type of companies or motion. Yeah. Exactly. I think, I think that's a good summary. I know that's a vast topic in itself, and we can just pick and do an entire podcast episode on just that one question. But we have a lot of ground to cover over here. Uh, so switching gears a bit over here. So I did a quick research and looked at your profile in how you grew up the ranks as I think you started off as an employee first and then went up to the VP of the C-suite level. And then somewhere along the way, the whole startup bug caught you, right? I think you've done like pick one and then batch five and seven, then of course add espresso, 
But now we're talking about big names. Alespresso got uh, acquired by Hootsuite. And then now you're at MailUp. And I'll also let you share the new thing that you have on your mind. So just walk me and the listeners to as to how you grew from the ranks of a quote-unquote employee to switching on going into the side. I think the realization there, that's a good question. I think the realization is that I've kind of generally have been always like a very bad employee, <laughs> like a not, <laughs> not very employable person. Yeah. And the reason for that is that I tend to get excited about hard stuff or hard things. And I also kind of constantly challenge myself. And I, I, so as a consequence, I tend to, you know, ask a lot of the people around me as well. And I am the most excited when I can participate in the upside of the value that I'm contributing, creating. Like the reality is that the employee world is not really built for that. And so what you're trading off, you know, when being an employee or like when you're making that decision or like consciously or unconsciously is that trading security for upside. Right. When you're an employee, you have a series of, you know, guarantees and you have stability and you have, you have paycheck and you have benefits and all that good stuff. But to some degree, that takes away a little bit of the upside that you can get. And you're accepting that the upside is going to be captured by your employer. Right. And so when I started kind of realizing those things, like, like inside my head, I said, okay, let's say it's time to try this entrepreneurial thing. And so I went on and started my first company which was Pick One, uh, started my second one. Uh, Pick One was kind of a social market research for enterprise companies based on Facebook. And then, you know, based on that experience, it didn't go super far. We ended up selling that. So it was a good outcome. Not a lot of money, but great learnings. And consequence to that, started at Espresso realizing that Facebook cared more about the advertising side as opposed as the, the research side and was willing to use data but not keep data away. And so with that espresso, the espresso was essentially Facebook advertising split testing for small and medium businesses and small and medium enterprises. When at the time when Facebook split testing wasn't a thing. And so they ended up actually taking inspiration, quote unquote, from many of the of the ideas that we had implemented in the in the product. As a company, we ended up growing very aggressively uh, in three years from zero to 50 people, about $6 million in, in ARR and about $300 million in Facebook advertising budget process through the platform on a yearly basis. We got Espresso, one of the top five ad tech partners for Facebook globally and the number one by number of advertisers uh, because every ad partner was focusing on a small number of big advertisers while we were doing the opposite, big number of small ones. And that led us to the relationship with Hootsuite and ended up selling a dispersal to Hootsuite, which of course was an acquisition that made a lot of sense back in the days because it's the biggest social media uh, management solution out there on one side with the biggest mid-market Facebook advertising partner on the other side. And through that experience and then stayed on with Hootsuite, as you know, global head of growth operations, pretty much overseeing ads products within the portfolio as well as the ads revenue line, which ended up growing about 3x since then in last year. And through that experience, the, so a couple of the realizations. One, the, the love for speed and growth 
to the obsession around not only growth, but efficient growth. And so, you know, you can spend a lot of money to buy a lot of growth, but that only lasts up to a certain point and or only a certain number of companies can do that because it's a function of capital you have available. And one of the things that is very interesting about the times we live in is that, you know, we live in a world where we have the biggest markets available in terms of number of customers, number of companies in those. And not only we live in a world with the biggest uh, markets ever, but also the most accessible ever. Because everyone has a smartphone, you know, in their pocket and a credit card attached to that. So that drives a lot of new dynamics that are different compared to like 10, 15 years ago, where, you know, getting in front of customers was a very expensive endeavor. And nowadays, not so much anymore. And so that, you know, unlocks a whole series of new dynamics, new behaviors, which are very interesting to observe. Yeah, good stuff. So just rewinding back a bit as to, so you mentioned about Ad Espresso when you started, it was all around, obviously there was Facebook audience taking off and there was Facebook uh, usage taking off on a daily basis. And on the other side of the platform, the Facebook platform, you have the advertisers and into which Facebook was obviously investing a whole lot because they at some point in time need to monetize, right? So how did you run to the idea of creating this platform for advertisers and what were the steps you took to test and get traction with the initial set of advertisers? Because yes, after you land like 5, 10, 15, 20, you see a blueprint playing out, but landing those first 5, 10 is the key. I think it's a combination of two things. On one side, Adespresso was born out of a need that we had as a concept. And so we were the first customer of the product to some degree. And we had a very, very clear micro founder, particularly Massimo, uh, had an agency back in the days when he was kind of building products for bigger organizations on one side, on the other, you know, managing small Facebook advertising budgets on the. So that's one insight, like being the first customer always helps a lot because you have a lot of expertise and as well as knowledge, as well as insights into what's working, what's not working, what the need of other people like you. And then the other piece of insight, I think, is tied to the realization that because Facebook back in the days was kind of this new and upcoming, you know, ad channel that was trying to compete with Google, it, they just like had stolen Sheryl Sandberg from Google to go and, you know, kind of rebuild, replicate the Google ad infrastructure inside Facebook. And so we, like, the special insight that we had was realizing that there was a mid-market story that people like other companies were not necessarily paying attention to. If you looked at the Google history, you could clearly see that they started from enterprise, big brand type of spenders and then evolved down market to the mid-market and then smaller guy type of user. And so you kind of imagine that you know, Facebook would follow a similar path. And if you cared more or like were particularly intrigued and interested in that mid-market space, if you squinted, you could, you know, see that these people or like this new wave of advertisers would be, would be having money to spend, but not much knowledge in how to do it. And so there was an opportunity in enabling them telling that story through content, which is what we did and how we ended up kind of winning the market and being a very, very big kind of household name when it comes to Facebook advertising. 
Cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think having that key insight, yeah, it was very smart of you and did you say co-founder Massimo who had that insight into, hey, you know what? We as our customers, we are running into the same challenges that our other advertising partners and customers would have. But I think the takeaway for me from all of this is where Facebook and Google, the big company going after the bigger brands and the bigger budgets, but then there's a runway which is exactly what you tapped into, the runway of, hey, no one is addressing the mid-market or even the SMBs, right? Or how do you tap into that pocket? So yeah, pretty excited. It's a great learning experience for me as well, firsthand from all the experiences and insights that you have there. Just switching gears over here. So if you have to say like the big two or three paradigms, and you did touch upon this earlier, Armando, which is uh, if you have to say the two to three paradigms into your common thread across the startups that you have gravitated towards from an investor or even startups that you have founded? What are the common threads, if you will? In terms of like uh, things that are different, that have changed. So, so if I just give the example of what you just mentioned about Ad Espresso, right? Yeah. So there are a bunch of things that are significantly different, right? One, and particularly when it comes to go-to-market, I think the most fascinating thing that I observe over and over again is that if you think about today versus like 10 to 15 years ago, it's interesting because we don't, we tend to not to think about it, but the internet as like Yum is little more than 25 years old. We are the last generation, which is nothing if you think about it. And we are the last generation that is going to remember time before the internet. And if you think about like the new generations, like uh, the internet was there already. So it was already a thing. Like there was no ICQ or like that weird stuff. So if you think about that, and if you think about like, let's call it 10 years ago, there was like a significantly smaller number of people online, right? Like an order of magnitude, if not almost two. And it was significantly more expensive to reach those people and significantly more inefficient to build a business relationship that would lead to a transaction, right? And those are all things that are fundamentally different today compared to then in the sense that there is an order of magnitude more of people online. It's significantly more efficient and faster to build, to establish that relationship with them and to turn that into a business relationship and so to get to the point where you execute the transaction. And so it's literally, it costs almost nothing. It's not nothing, but, you know, comparably, it's significantly cheaper to do that, cheaper, faster, and more efficient to be relevant. Although, as everything, whenever there is an order of magnitude more of simplicity, there is also an order of magnitude more of competition. And so it's significantly more, it's easier, but also more crowded. It's easier to reach them out, but harder to stand out. And so how it's kind of a different game in that sense, because it's not about being efficient as possible in reaching those customers out. It's how do you stand out compared to everyone else that's trying to do the same thing and reaching them out with the same level of efficiency. And so it really comes down to that content element that I was mentioning before. Like, what's your story? What's your brand? Like, what's your unfair advantage in terms of better perception or like uh, telling a story that's closer to the segment of or like the cohort, the vertical of customers that you're trying to attract? 
in that sense, you know, if it's true, going back to the other element around markets being the biggest ever, one of the things that are very interesting to me is that once upon a time, like 10 years ago, like you would have niches of verticals of needs and problems that would be very small, right? Because there would be like only so many people having those problems. Today, those niches are, are like tens, if not hundreds of millions of people or tens, if not, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies. And so you see over and over again, these companies that are very like super niche, very specific, very deep in how they define themselves and how they speak to an ideal customer profile in ICP, right? So how they define that they are super specific in that as well. And because those niches are the biggest ever, they end up being, you know, companies that are like anyway, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 50 million companies a year. It's really interesting. That is maybe the, the single most fascinating thing that I can think of when it comes to go to market. And the companies that can win the win today or that end up winning today are better at this game, at this new game of standing out. And how you do that in this new playground where everyone can be efficient as everyone else is really like a new compelling problem to address. Yeah. I think you have a few thoughts and a few comments over there. But starting off on a lighter note, you mentioned something very relevant. By the way, we are disclosing our ages over here, which I have no qualms around, is uh, we are the last generation. And after that, after our generation, everyone were born with internet, right? So just on that, I think my kid, when I took him to one of the safeways, the local safeways over here, I think he went and looked at one of the vending machines. And by default, he was touching the screen and expecting that screen to be a touch screen. It's broken. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So this, yeah, so I thought that was uh, funny and that's something the audience will love. So a couple of points. You mentioned about companies that are very vertical and niche focused, and that itself is a very large space. So one of the names, and I'm sure there are several, one of the names that comes to my mind is Viva, mm-hmm. the CRM for the healthcare industry, right? I mean, yes, you got the big elephant over there, Salesforce. When you talk about CRM, it's Salesforce, but then you got the other players who are also making it big, which is like Viva and several others. I think your point is well taken and well noted, which is, yes, you can pick a niche or niche, depending on which part of the geography you're from, right? And you can create a big play for yourself because that's a big market. Mm -hmm. Another example that comes to my mind, and I was at the startup earlier in my career before I started uh, my current company. So I was at Greenbits, which is essentially doing point of sale and compliance software for the legal cannabis industry. Very specific. Yeah, it is a huge and a growing market. You got, when you talk about point of sale, you got Square and several others, but then you just focus on the cannabis industry, you got all these big players. Small players, but aiming to be big. So point noted. One other point that actually caught my attention in your narrative earlier, Armando, is I think the emphasis that you invest a lot in the story and the brand from the very early days of your startup. Not many founders do that, by the way. I think that's a flaw in my mind. Particularly in a world, we live in a world that's extremely DR-oriented. You can measure anything. You do measure everything. It's very analytical. It's very direct response. You put a dollar, you want to get $1.2 out. 
And that's good. And that's like the fact that you can do that is mind blowing. If you think about it, it was never the case before. That as a consequence does take away a little bit of attention from this idea of a brand. And brands have power. Brands talk about affinity, talk about the story, and stories are everything to people, right? And if you think about the biggest brands out there, like Nike, like an Apple, yeah. like there's nothing more powerful than that, like a Disney, right? Yeah. I think this is where you having that go-to-market DNA within yourself, I think that's given you an unfair advantage compared to other founders who typically come from a very technical background. They don't think about brand and storytelling from day one, right? So I think that's uh, hats off to you and your team for investing in that from day one. Appreciate that. So I think that's actually a good segue into what you're doing with your latest startup. Do you want to share some story and background around that as well as how you're investing in the brand? By the way, I looked at your website. It's amazing. I can imagine those visuals and I can associate that with your company now. I would let you share those details for our listeners. The name of the company is Breadcrumbs. And it's really a simple idea. We talked about this idea of efficiency and this idea of efficient growth and this idea of marketing being kind of a core of every company's growth engine. The reality is that that's necessary, but that's not enough, particularly in a world where you can attract a lot of attention. And at some point, you know, the, the vast majority of the companies that can do a good enough job, they will attract some attention. One of the elements that's always forgotten or like thought about too late or not really understood, and so as a consequence, you, you dump a lot of resources and a lot of time to get a barely okay result, if not kind of a shitty result, is this idea of lead scoring and qualification or like how an MQL or marketing qualified lead becomes a high-performing SQL or sales qualified lead. Right. If you think about this, like the reality is that like this element at the intersection between marketing and sales as functions within organizations really speaks about lead scoring. Like the way this happened from a mechanical perspective is lead scoring. But lead scoring is a fairly unsatisfying concept. It's a simple idea, but poorly implemented. You pass, you get a lead, you score this lead, you assign a value to this lead based on a series of criteria. You know, how big is the company, how much revenue, how much funding, how many customers, geography, which industry. And then you pass it over to your CRM and you call it a day. But every operator worth its salt knows that following up on a promising lead tomorrow versus three weeks from now is fundamentally different. And so the time element there, there is a decay of that value. There is a shelf life that's not really accounted for in these systems. And so the way, like what we believe is that it should be. It should be a more sophisticated way of thinking and talking and measuring and acting on these leads more programmatically at scale, more dynamically, including this time element. And not only the time element, there is also conversation around lead scoring being most of the times a black box. And no one ever in the history of like the human species ever trusted a black box, ever. Right? Because it's your leads, it's like your company, you want to know what the f*** is going on. I don't know if I can say that. And so you want to see what's inside. And that's a fun, another fundamental flaw of how lead scoring has been thought of so far. And so what we are doing with breadcrumbs is we want to give people more freedom 
and we want to give people like a simple, easy to use interface to create and design their own lead scoring model in like minutes instead of weeks of work. And so it's not only faster, but it's also better because it does take into account that timeliness element that no one else does consider. And so that's the idea around it. And we're building a product and hopefully it's going to be useful for other people out there. Yep. I personally have seen having run marketing teams in different companies earlier, I've seen where initially early on, there's no lead scoring, right? And there's this constant fight between marketing and sales. Quality of leads, you pass, you just are meeting a quota, but I'm not meeting my sales quota. That constant hustle is there. Yeah. Right? And if you go to the next level, which is, okay, now we start assigning a score to each lead. It's more of a personal opinion and a personal bias versus taking the data out there. It's really interesting because that relationship between marketing and sales is flawed all the way through, like from the very early stage to the very later stage. And if you think about it at the core, that type of antagonism is due to the fact that marketing measures things in a very quantitative way. How many leads are you getting on a monthly basis? And sales measures leads in a very qualitative way. How many of them are closing and how fast, right? So there is a fundamental disconnect between those two things. And there is a need of something that translates, you know, one language into the other, like from your marketing stack to your sales stack, from your marketing team to your sales team. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is a more general awareness and acknowledgement that's happening. At least I'm seeing based on the folks I'm speaking with, the marketing and sales leaders I'm speaking with this, which is they do realize the friction and they're consciously looking to address that now. So if I hear or speak with any of the VP marketing or even the CMOs, yes, back in the days, it was the top KPIs were MQL or traffic, right? Traffic coming in. But now I think there's a lot of awareness and alignment on, hey, it's that is a good to have metric, but the real metric is how many leads am I giving for the sales to close this quarter or this year or the next quarter? I think there's that element, which is, okay, marketing celebrating where they hit their MQL quota versus marketing celebrating when sales hits their number for the quarter. I think that shift is happening now. I'm seeing that. And the other thing that's crazy, if you think about it, we can talk about this like however you want, is that right now there is no, like information is still very siloed. So like if someone visits your website, like the, the pricing page of your website, like five times last week, yeah. you want to know about that. Right. And you don't. Like if someone starts, you know, it's very engaged with the product and someone else from the same company like just sign up for a trial and someone else visited your pricing page, you want to know about that. So the concept around not only timeliness, but also frequency and recency and the clustering of that activity in time, right? The like activity like happening very close to each other disproportionately amplifies value. And that also is not really captured or represented in any way. Right. I mean, people talk about intent to purchase. I mean, all these are key attributes. Unfortunately, we don't have, there's not a lot of technology out there to build and incorporate that intent. But I think the aspects that you're mentioning around breadcrumbs, I'm really eager to see how it takes off and I'm cheering for you guys. I mean, yes, we, this is a core problem in the go-to-market space and I'm looking forward to the success. Yeah, I just think that's like, kind of mind-blowing to me thinking about this. Like One of the reasons why we started breadcrumbs in the first place is that 
even the most sophisticated people, the ones that do it like it should be done, spend like six months and like uh, several hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement iteration one. Right. And then because it's so time consuming and so energy intensive, they pretty much never touch it again. Yeah. And meanwhile, their sales organization or their marketing organization changes. Their strategic priorities as a company change. Their pricing structure change. And so, and that does it. And so the idea of having something that's like significantly more flexible, and not only you can implement it in like minutes instead of weeks, but you can iterate on it as quickly. I think it's an extremely powerful. So the combination between like speed of implementation, something that you can, because again, the most sophisticated people not only have one lead scoring model, but they have multiple ones. They have one for acquisition, one for retention, one for upsell and cross-sell. Not only they have one for each and every one of these things, but they test multiple models in parallel to see which one performs the best based on which assumption. And so the more you can enable that, the more you can enable companies to be successful in literally accelerating their growth trajectory. Because if you can identify you know, programmatically higher value opportunity for you as a company and boost them up to the sales team, everyone's going to benefit from that. Yeah, and based on what you're saying here, Armando, I think obviously there's some sense of a machine learning aspect that's going on, right? I mean, clearly the machines have to do the job which people are either A, not capable of doing it, or it's time-consuming that they ignore to do that. Yeah, for sure. Although, like a counterintuitive thought there, if you talk with a lot of people in the, in the industry, they will speak about ML for a long time, and they will use this in their pitch as well. We think it's valuable, like machine learning is valuable, yes. We also think it shouldn't be the whole story, meaning that what machine learning can do is essentially digest a whole lot of data and find patterns there, right? And kind of surface things that you, it would be hard to see otherwise or you know, hard to compute otherwise. That's by and large. What that doesn't include in the conversation is what about the strategic direction the company wants to go after for the next like six to 18 months, right? If even if you are an enterprise company and like so far all your customers have been like 50k ACV, but leadership wants to go down market and you know start you know optimizing for and prioritizing like 25 to 15k ACV, machine learning is not going to know that, right? And so how do you balance those? two things out. Yeah, I think data model and data modeling is a vast topic in itself. I think at some point in time, I would love to get a data scientist to talk about the impact in go-to-market, but that's a topic and for a different conversation though. So switching gears here. So if you were to look forward, I'm sure you're spending a lot of time there, which is in the next 6, 12, 18 months. What do you see are the key go-to-market challenges or broadly the challenges for breadcrumbs.io? I mean, for us specifically, but really you can generalize this to every company, is going back to the two things that I, I mentioned earlier. So on one side, how do you stand out in a world where everyone can reach anyone very effectively? How do you do better? It's a very interesting question. And, and we can talk about tactics there. Yeah, the story and the brand and the colors that you have on the website, it's pretty cool, the visuals. <laughs> but it's just one part. You just need to scale that out and see yeah, how it's But it's very cool, though. I appreciate that. Yeah. I love it. And then the other thing is that how do you tie 
things back to growth because you you can do a great job at all levels and then like struggle anyway to generate revenue and or to to growth right one of the kind of fundamental idea that I've been thinking about for a, a lot and partially led to this you know breadcrumbs initiative or in general you know I think it's a very powerful idea is the the idea of engineering growth meaning that you hear when when you know the word engineering usually refers to technology and product how you build stuff and that's usually coding but i think like if i think back to the espresso experience or in general the companies i've been involved with i think the most sophisticated what i see is the most sophisticated operators thinking about growth in terms of something that you can design and the way you do that is through a combination of strategy and tactic and tactic for the short term and strategy for the long term. And then you have kind of always these three time frames in front and center, you know, short term stuff, midterm stuff and, and long term stuff. And if you think about back to, I don't know, the most successful companies out there like Facebook, Uber, Slack, and you look at their growth trajectories, you notice most of the times inflection points so kind of breaking points where they were going in one direction and then, and then at some point they tilt up and afterwards they you know go in that other direction so what happens there right that was sometimes happened by chance some other times it was intentional like it was researched and experimented on for a while and maybe implemented right away, or maybe you know they hold they held on implementing it for like six months and waited for the right moment to deploy that uh, initiative. And so I think that's if there was you know something that that was interesting to you at some point. But I think if I think about the most sophisticated operators or go-to-market growth revenue people out there, they most of the times think about growth in this sense. Mm-hmm. Understood. So obviously there are the usual sets of set of tactics and milestones and goals that you need to hit when you are in a very early stage company. I think, I think that's a playbook that you've done over and over, that that's the least of the challenges for you and the team. And then there's the market aspect. Obviously you can control the market only so much. There's not much, but I think you are investing in the story, the brand, and your milestones that you want to hit over the next 6, 12, 18 months. So clearly, good initiative there. So if you were to look at and share some of your investment areas, so what will be the one, two, or three? Like if you were to hire like two or three hires in the next 6, 12 months, who would they be and why? So far, we've been kind of covering the basis. So you know, strengthening the engineering team, and then marketing, and then sales and support. And so right now, like this week, uh, we're looking at the sales function. And I think that would be kind of the structure for, at this point, with a company that are about like 15 people involved. And I think we have, with that specific addition, we are going to have our base covered. For the next three to six months, I think it's going to be function of growth and market validation, probably engineering and product and design will, will, have, will be a topic. Of course, you, know, you can never get enough of those. 
One thing, probably operations. We didn't strengthen too much operations just yet. I think it's it is going to be a topic very soon. Understood. So if you were to extrapolate and look at, so clearly you're going to invest in the product side. Clearly you're going to invest in the engineering side. You're going to invest in sales, of course, and the revenue. And yes, I got the question back that I had for you. <laughs> so breadcrumbs.io. So who is your target market for the next 6, 12 months? Is it like the small, medium size, similar to what you did with Ad Espresso, Or is it the enterprises or a mix? And why? It's mid-market. It's a good question. So one of the theses behind breadcrumbs is that people or companies generally think about lead scoring too late in the game. They should start earlier. And so we want to start early with them. We want to grow with them. We want to have them grow. And we want like something that's easy to set up and implement at first. And then it grows in sophistication as the complexity and maturity of the companies grows as well. Enables more of that growth, but we do want to start simple, easy, early. And so in, in that sense, we're looking like the companies we are optimizing for, focusing on for right now as companies that, that are generating like one to five mil or like two to 10 mil type of revenue annual. And they have a marketing engine that works that's generating a few hundred leads per month or more. And they have assisted motion. So they have an initial sales spot of, you know, a couple of people that they hired. And so it's the initial relationship, adversarial relationship, marketing and sales and things are not really picking just yet. There you go. Yeah. I, I like that sweet spot. I think that's a good, at least from a hypothesis point of view, and even from a validation point of view, I think that's a good sweet spot to start off. That's where the most pain is felt initially. And again, coming back to my green bits days where I was the head of marketing there, clearly see we were in the single digits, like the four or five mil range. And that's where the whole marketing and sales friction as well as the CEO and the CRO saying, hey, get me the leads, sales, you need to- Get your shit together, guys. Yeah. Yes, yes. I do think that's kind of the sweet spot when this topic becomes a real pain. Yes, absolutely. So I know we are heading towards the closing. I know you need to get back to other more important things for breadcrumbs.io. So one final question for you is, if you were to do a shout out to two to three professionals or peers in the industry who are doing go-to-market very well, who you, do you look up to for inspiration or advice or brainstorming? I have a company that I, I very much admire, which is HubSpot. Lots of friends, they're doing an extremely good job at go to market they have been for a long time now. Any specific names there? No. But they are they're doing a great, great job. And then like younger companies, no specific name comes to mind. Yeah. I think the golden standard for me is, is really helpful when it comes to go to market. Both because they have a lot of the elements that do contribute to a healthy growth trajectory. And you can see that in their revenue in the in their history, right? They have an inbound first. Atalassian, another one, right? They have an inbound first type of go-to-market, like a bottom-up. Mm -hmm. uh, they start very cheap and they end up being very expensive. Right. And they have a cross-sell, upsell type of mechanics that they built in the product. They not only have self-service upgrade paths, but also like commercial enterprise ones. It's maybe the most sophisticated go-to-market that I can think of right now. Cool. And I can clearly see where your inspiration for your go-to-market is coming from. It's the bottom-up approach. It's, it's clearly there. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. 
So wonderful conversation, Armando. Thank you for your time and uh, good luck to the breadcrumbs team and good luck to you as well. Looking forward and uh, I'll be cheering from the side. Thank you so much and uh, best of luck to you too. Okay, thanks. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strative.com. S T R A T Y V E.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast, leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast. Thank you.